Here we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, finishing up this chapter as we see that Peter is yet continuing to address this idea that the context of the faithfulness with which these who are called exiles, made exiles by Christ because of their redemption, the context of their faithfulness is that really of hostility. And so Peter brings encouragement, certainly opens up the possibility joyfully that they might serve Christ, that they might live out their lives peaceably as they speak and do the things of the gospel, recognizing that uh, that is certainly the means by which they could, uh, in the grace of God, purchase for themselves uh, this biblical concept of a quiet and peaceful life. Yet nonetheless, Peter acknowledges that he is writing to a people who are not in large measure enjoying a peaceableness, but they are involved in the context of hostility, of difficulty around them, of course, of their own redeemed flesh, internally that they war against day by day, but yet nonetheless a people who are enjoying victory because of the Lord Jesus. It's become a common lamentation regarding what is referred to as big evangelicalism, that she has fallen to a fatal reduction of the gospel in an attempt to appease and be nice. And I draw your attention to this idea that the Apostle Peter, as he, as he instructs us and exhorts us on how to live, uh, it is this idea of, of not doing evil, of being zealous for good that Peter draws our attention to. Ultimately, that great arbiter of our relationships and how we act is truthfulness, is being truth. And I would call your attention to this idea that the real glory days of Israel were not the rich opulence of the reign of Solomon, but they were the grit and honor of the warrior nation led by David. It seems that our sovereign God has designed the faithful life to only exist in the context of hostility. Now, and there are many uh, that, like me, are in many ways grateful for the fact that uh, the faithful of Christ recognize that no longer are we fooling ourselves in American culture to think that we have some sort of majority. And let us lay that aside uh, because it isn't true. I'm not sure if it ever was true, but what we find today is that God is showing us that we should delight ourselves in this context by which our faith is shaped not by the ease that might be compared to Solomon's opulent reign, but by David's warrior nation. And so let us recognize that today as Peter continues his exhortation. And so let's look here at verse 8. We're coming off the heels of verses 1 through 7 where Peter, uh, by the power and uh, call of a sovereign God, decides to address not only the braids of ladies and what they wear, uh, but also the prayers of their husbands. And we see here in verse 8, what seems in some ways to be a little bit of an isolated remark on living in harmony in the church. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now this, uh, we can see uh, perhaps the immediate context of this might be to the church that Peter was writing to in this area, but also we see that certainly that would also be true and it should be the character of God's people projected onto a hostile nation. Live in harmony. 
And so Simon Kistemacher uh, is persuaded that, again, what is in view here, among other things, is this idea that when you look at the multiplicity of gifts and talents in any church, that there was this idea that everyone wasn't thinking exactly the same thing about the same things. We know that's impossible. You're like me. You don't even agree with yourself on occasion. But what we understand in the Scriptures here is this idea that this diversity and the differences shouldn't divide, but they should enrich. They should be viewed as enriching. We should ask ourselves the question as God's people when God brings one into our midst. Or How many of you have, have enjoyed sort of learning something that you didn't know about another member in our flock? And you should begin to wonder, you should begin to wonder, why did God give them that gift? What is the purpose of that particular skill or desire? Or when God brings new people into our congregation, we should ask ourselves the question, why has God brought that one there? Because the sovereign Lord of the universe and the master of this church of every local congregation, as well as the larger church, invisible, we see that he has purposefully brought people into the congregation. And he's calling us to live in harmony, to to rightly recognize God has brought gifts, not only gifts, but also opportunities for us to minister to. You see, we're, we're all in a situation, and you will notice this on your membership application, we're all in a situation of things that we can bring to the congregation, but also things that even we ourselves can recognize as needs that God has. That we need, and we are willing to confess that yes, I need this, and the Lord will provide that. How does He provide that? By His church. By His church. And so the idea here is, is certainly in line with Romans twelve sixteen. this idea that we're not haughty, as a people, as God's people. Who's the great shepherd of this church? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the beautiful things of a plurality of elders. There's a recognition in this plurality that there is no single leader. Not here. (laughs) He's in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. As a matter of fact, Peter addresses this very idea at the end of this chapter. Also in Zechariah 7, 9, this idea that we render true judgments. We live in harmony. Why is that? Well, primarily because we speak the truth. Yes, this is a truth that is conditioned and shaped by love, but nonetheless, it's truth. We speak the truth also consistent with 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six. If one suffers, all suffer. If one is honored, we all rejoice. And this really characterizes uh, what Peter is talking about here with doing life together. Doing life together. Do we know each other? God has called us. How do we live in harmony? Well, a big way, obviously, that we have to do that, that we only can accomplish that, is by knowing each other. That's one of the reasons that I was so drawn to the chaplain ministry in the military because because the, the very idea is that we are with the people. Where they go, the chaplain goes. What they do, the chaplain does. What they endure, the chaplain does. The same sort of idea. This is, this is what Peter is addressing in, in verse 8 here of chapter 3 in his first letter. 
This idea of being in harmony. We do life together. You're hurting, I'm hurting. You got a leaky roof, it's my roof. You're getting wet, I'm getting wet. Right? That's the idea. You're delighting yourself in a special benefit from the Lord. I expect you'll invite me to enjoy that as well. The same idea, right? The same idea that God, that God, when, when others are honored, we rejoice, right? We rejoice. We're happy for them. Obviously, we would enjoy that as well. Doing life together. Now, let's look here. There's a little bit of a change of gear, but nonetheless, still this character of the redeemed that's projected to a hostile world in verse 9. Right out of the gate, he says, Do not repay evil for evil. It seems a little abrupt from from verse 8 here, right? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, in this passage, we also have, as I mentioned last week and a week before or so, this idea of some purpose statements. We recognize, uh, for instance, in chapter 2, there are a number of purpose statements. In chapter 2, verse 9, for instance, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Purpose statement, chosen that you may proclaim. We could also see here in verse uh, 15, purpose statement, By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Purpose statement in verse 21. For to this you have been called. Whatever follows, that's a purpose statement, right? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. Does it surprise you that you've been called to suffer? That you've been shaped that God has invested Himself in you and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you might do this thing, not only of blessing, not only of proclaiming, not only of doing good, but of suffering. This idea we see here is also carried through in verse 9. He says, For to this you were called to bless. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to this idea of bless. What does he mean? Does he mean you lavish on your enemies certain things? This is certainly not the comprehensive statement about how to deal with enemies, but nonetheless, I would draw your attention to this idea, and am persuaded, as are many others, that a synonym for bless here is simply pray. Pray for your enemies. Calvin was persuaded that was the idea, and so am I. And so I think that it's appropriate that we see at least here that God is calling upon us to pray for our enemies. How do we bless them? Again, the point here is not to respond in kind. If I were to have a big, large title for this section, it would simply be this, Revenge is Ruled Out. What's the biblical alternative to revenge? It's prayer. It's prayer. Don't get mad. Don't get even. Pray. That's the idea. That's what we're being called to here. We can't earn a blessing, but we inherit this. Speaking of the future, complete salvation. We can pray for others because we have the ultimate blessing in the future, an inheritance.
Now, I want to illustrate this. I want you to think for a minute. It's as if the Apostle Peter were to come up to you in the difficulty that you're having. He were to put his arm around you, okay? Are you with me here? The fisherman Peter, the impetuous Peter, the one that the one that strips off his clothing and jumps in the water when he says, it is the Lord at the end of John, and he swims to the shore. He wants to beat the boat, right? Peter, Peter, this, this man of grit, this one who was martyred along with all the other apostles, he were to come up to you and he were to say, keep on being faithful. Our way is the better way. We will win in the end. Do not be drawn away from your faithfulness by being revengeful, cynical, or angry. You're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Don't forget our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees all you do, and He reigns supreme. He approves of your faithfulness. You follow in His steps and as you respond by praying for your enemies and not being bitter against them. Think of it. Again, Peter, it's as if Peter's saying, look here, if not for your redemption, the roles might be reversed. You might be the one bringing hostility and anger to the things and to the people of God. And we can do the same to the unredeemed. That's what Peter is saying here. It's this, this idea that, that we can look around us and we can see great difficulty in our culture. Perhaps we might cast our eyes right now to China, to Beijing, and if you b- please don't believe what you might see on the television regarding Beijing because it's not real. Uh, the real China is a China of hostility. It's a China of death. It's a China of using people. It's a China that is atheistic. It's a China that, re- that resists and rejects the things of God. But nonetheless... It's also a China with a thriving faith in Christ. Where people, just like the Apostle Paul, are taking to themselves friends and they're saying, look here, there's a better way. There's a better way. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well. And He will redeem your soul. The church, the faithful church, is the place where you want to be. There's a better way for you. There's a way for you to have your sins forgiven. There's a way for you to delight yourself in the things of God. There's a way for you to enter into and eke out actual joyfulness in this life, even in a difficult place of China. That's what the faithful are saying in China right now. Just the same as the Apostle Peter is telling us in this letter. That's the idea. That's what he's saying to us. There's no reason to be bitter. We know the truth. God is with us. The Apostle Peter says himself at the end of this chapter, our Lord Jesus is on the throne. And what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? He said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. He sees us. He knows us. He's with us. And now Peter shifts a little bit here in verse 10 as he is going to quote from Psalm 34, verses 10 through 12. 
It shouldn't be a surprise to us that word and deed are often the vessels that deliver good days. You know, in my early days back in the Navy, we used to surface the submarine and meet a tugboat. And the tugboat would deliver mail. And on my birthday, it delivered a pound cake from my mother. But you see, we have this idea, children, of a delivery vessel. A delivery vessel. You know what a delivery... What does a delivery vessel do? It brings things. You have little brown trucks that come to your house sometimes, right? You have other gray trucks that might come to your house. You have white trucks with blue and red stripes on them sometimes that come to your house, right? And they deliver things, right? Well, what the Apostle Peter here, as he is drawing from Psalm 34, has the same idea of delivery. And he's saying, the way to deliver yourself. One of those days that you might recall and look back on and say, those were the good days. Is by what we say and what we do. Now, children, it may not seem that your good days are based on what you say or do. But I can assure you that you remember that your bad days are often because of what you say or do. Right? Because of something you've said or done, the day can no longer really be characterized as a good day. And so Peter is helping for us to understand this idea. We deliver... We see the means of which, of course, God doesn't owe us this, but He is describing the means by which we can enjoy a good day by what it is that we say and what it is that we do. Verse 10 here. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Is that you? Do you want to see that? Well, He says, let him keep his tongue from what? From evil. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. There's the speaking and here's the doing. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, I don't want to make an undo much of what the Apostle Peter doesn't. But in the context of our culture, particularly evangelical culture today, I think it's important that we notice that the Apostle Peter here is prioritizing good over evil. Right? He's prioritizing truth, we understand, over anything else. While kindness is certainly a fruit of holiness, and many evangelicals have created an additional sola, to add to the five drawn from the Reformation, that is, sola feelings, as Virgil Walker and Daryl Harrison have contended, that is, that being nice is now the priority. The overarching and defining attribute, St. Peter emphasizes, not being evil or deceitful, the doing of good. As a matter of fact, it does seem today, it seems today, that in many quarters, kindness is viewed as antithetical to truth. Kindness is viewed as antithetical to truth. Now I want to assure you that the Apostle Peter here is not giving us leave 
to be unkind. It's just that, again, our culture has persuaded us, and many big evangelical leaders have been drawn into this trap in which they have decided that if I can't say it and be liked, then it must not be the right time to say it. Or I won't be able to say it. Or it's incompatible with the characteristics of Christ. But the Apostle Peter completely crushes that entire idea to powder in this entire letter. But he also, of course, is doing it right here in chapter 3 as well. Overall, the biblical priority on speech is truth. It's truth. But of course, there's more to speech than merely speaking. Peter's addressed that in the first section of this letter when he speaks about husbands and wives. He speaks about this idea uh, not only of speech but of the way that we treat. He's, he's, He's placed as a great priority that of conduct, that of what we do, not only of what we say. He says in chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to... Being nice? No, your obedience to the truth, right? For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Galatians 4.16, Have I then become your enemy, the Apostle Paul says, by telling you the truth. Again, the Apostle Peter nor the Apostle Paul, they're not giving us leave to be unkind. It's just that as we address our culture, the reality is, is that we cannot... Reduce the truth of God to an inoffensive seed. I am persuaded that there are many that think that they can shave off all of the margins of biblical faith such that there is a kernel of this faith that I can describe and then therefore be liked and commended as sophisticated and professional by every one that hears. It's absolute nonsense. And it, it's, it's demonic in a number of ways to think in that way. And again, Peter is drawing our attention to this idea. We live in a hostile community to the gospel and Peter ultimately is saying, So what? Be faithful in the midst of it. Now, he goes on. And he says, you, you, should, you should pursue peace quietly so that you don't draw attention to yourself. Is that what he says? No, actually in verse 13 he says, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? You want to get in trouble with the gospel? Be zealous. Be zealous for the gospel, for the truths of the gospel. Overextend your kindness. Bring a warm loaf of bread to the angry neighbor. Be zealous for the truth. Express your kindness in the midst of hostility. And God will use that. That's what Peter is talking to us here about. Now along these same lines addressed in verse 11 about seeking peace and pursuing it. 
Peter describes peace as fragile. He describes it as elusive. It should never be taken for granted. It doesn't just happen. But when it's worked for and enjoyed, it doesn't just remain either, does it? It must be meticulously maintained. The basis of biblical peace is truth, not deceit, not covering up difficulties. Let's think about this for a minute. How we live peaceably with one another. If you were to take inventory about uh, with maybe the people that you call friends, if you were to take inventory, it may be that uh, some of the people that you don't know very well seem to be categorized in your mind as those most kindly and attractive friends. But as I look at the Apostle Peter's letter in the Scriptures, you know, we begin to realize that that any relationship of any depth is going to reveal things that, in fact, are quite annoying, right? The reality is, is, is that no matter who we are, the closer we get to one another, we begin to kind of recognize that they sing out of tune. Or as the old Puritans would say, their boots squeak. Right? They, they just cough all the time. You know, it's this sort of thing. And Peter addresses this idea actually in chapter 4 in verse 8 when he addresses this idea with this phrase, love covering. My friends, obviously there is much about us, these little things that hopefully our better friends can sharpen us out of, but nonetheless they may not be able to help us sing in tune, right? And so we're stuck with that. You're stuck with that, right? Now, but the idea is that love covers these things. But we also see that love cannot cover everything. There are things that continue to weaken and destroy relationships. Issues that shape for the worse. These must be dealt with openly and frankly with repentance, forgiveness, and better actions empowered by the Holy Spirit as a result of our redemption. The human conscience can only handle so many offenses and then bitterness and isolation will find their way in unless we honor Christ in our hearts. Recognize the depth of communion with Christ in our suffering and invest ourselves in bettering the relationships, beginning with prayer. Beginning with prayer. Verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, here's Peter. Here's Peter putting his arm around us and he's saying, Look, we know better. Christ is better. Christ's way is better. As you walk in the holiness of Christ, as you enjoy the power of the redemption, we can work this out better. That's what he's saying. Our Master, His eyes are upon you. He's watching you. Not to monitor you 
and to whack you on the head, but because He loves you and is caring for you. And the Bible says right here in this passage that comes off of the psalm, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I love what Psalm 37, 37 says. It says, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. And what the psalmist is saying is exactly what Peter is saying here. He's saying not only does God know the righteous, that's us, we're not perfect, right? But in Christ, he's talking about the redeemed here. You want to be one of those people. Yes, you want to be one of those people. But the psalmist is also saying that others, as God's people, we should also mark the righteous man. Watch him. Let him be your example. The Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Now I draw your attention to this idea that the Lord, his eyes are on the righteous and his face is against those who do evil. One of the unfortunate aspects of our culture is that we have changed this idea a little bit. And while this won't be a comprehensive explanation of the doctrine of election and the way that God works, nonetheless, we should make note of this fact that regarding those who insist that God loves the sinner and hates the sin, His face is against those who do evil, not only their deeds. Okay? That's a nice little euphemism to say that God hates sin, but not the sinner. The Bible says that God has turned His face away from the sinner and to the righteous, to the redeemed. Children, God gives us no cover when we run away from Him. It's not as if He watches in the corner and thinks that we're still okay when we sin against Him, when we turn away from Him day by day. There's no safety there. God's face is toward those who are redeemed, those who entrust themselves to Him, and those who not merely profess faith, but those who confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is for the one and against the other. And let us be absolutely clear that the Lord Jesus loved us while we were sinners. And He turns us to Himself. While peace is energetically pursued, our relationship with those who do evil and not the good often comes to the point of suffering which also ends in our good as we enjoy deep communion with Christ and enjoy an agreeable conscience since we've been faithful. Again in verse 13, Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? John Knox says, with God on his side, man is always in the majority. St. Peter doesn't merely prioritize doing good, but being zealous for what is good. 
We read as our responsive reading the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Really? What, what, did, what does Jesus mean by that? Is He blessed are those who are persecuted? How are we to understand that? It, it doesn't even seem rational. But Peter is, again, calling our attention. The context, the normal Christian life is lived in many ways in an environment that is hostile to the things of God. And when we express our faithfulness and are hated because of it, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, you are blessed. Is that what Peter said when he was in prison? Is that not what the other apostles said? The martyrs of old, those faithful of old. Did they not confess? Did they not speak to us about this idea that only in this way could they enter into this deeper communion with the Lord Jesus Christ? This is why this is always brought to the forefront. Suffering as Christ. Not because we delight ourselves in pain, but because we delight ourselves in communion with the Lord Jesus. There's something at stake larger than our peaceable relationships. Something at stake larger than our peaceable relationships. And that is the validity and integrity of the faith once delivered to the saints. Verse 15, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The very end of our own enjoyment of walking faithfully with Christ isn't merely a peaceable relationship that may or may not happen because of someone else's rejection of the gospel. But it is the validation and the propagation of the faith once delivered to the saints. That's what Peter is talking about here in verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the idea. Calvin says, What we say without a corresponding life has but little weight. Hence he joins to confession a good conscience, for we see that many are sufficiently ready with their tongue and prate much very freely and yet with no fruit because the life does not correspond. I've mentioned this quote from Luther before. Luther said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And be to be steady on all the battlefields besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Now, if you were to read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you would find in there the definition of the word profess. And you would get 
the context of this idea of professing faith, if you were to read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Because in this Pilgrim's Progress, to be merely a professor, as Bunyan would say, means that your religion is only in your mouth. Only in your mouth. But Luther is drawing a distinction between professing and confessing. And I would draw your attention, were you to look up today in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, you would see that one of the definitions of confess is to give evidence for. To give evidence for. That's what Luther is referring to here. I'm only giving evidence for the faith that is in me if I address with the gospel even that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking. This is the idea. It doesn't matter if you win the battle on every other field. Right? You've got to fight where the battle rages. That's the place where your defense must hold. And that's what he's talking about here in verses 15 and 16. Now he introduces also this idea of having a good conscience. Having a good conscience. Luther uh, is one who, of course, uh, drew much attention to this idea of conscience. And he had a conscience that that was more and more trained by... uh, that it would be consistent with the revealed Word of God. And that's what Peter is talking to us about here. What is a good conscience? Does that mean that whatever... Is, that, is this a Jiminy Cricket kind of quote here? Right? Is, this, is the idea simply that, that just whatever uh, you feel like you should do, you should do? Is that, is that what the good conscience is? Is that the idea? No. No. Jiminy Cricket says... Let your conscience be your guide, I think. Is that what Jiminy Cricket says? Well, that's not what Peter is saying here. You know, Peter, children, Peter is drawing our attention to this idea that my conscience is good and getting better when it is consistent and reflects the Word of God. I'm persuaded today that many a conscience is bruised, not because of lagging behind and being zealous for doing what is good, as Peter mentions in verse 13, but because of the slander spoken of here in verse 16. Here's my point. Is your conscience bruised because people slander your good works? Or, Is your conscience bruised because you have not done good or not spoken truth? Do you see? The one is based on sola feelings. The other is based on sola scriptura. Do you see the difference? And so so our conscience needs to be rightly bruised for those things that are, in fact, offensive to a holy God revealed in His Word. If you're upset because people hate you for the Gospel, the Lord Jesus doesn't call upon you to go cry over your soup. He calls upon you to rejoice because you have been chosen to be persecuted for faithfulness. That's what Christ says. But we also see here that a good conscience is vital for the Christian life. It's vital for living the Christian life. 
Again, what, what is training our conscience? We see here the biblical alternative to being afraid is to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, as the Lord, as uh, rather the King James Version says in in verse fifteen, ESV. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Again, I kind of appreciate what the King James says: sanctify Christ in your hearts. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that you're going to make Jesus more holy? No. No, the idea is that you, in fact, exalt Christ in your heart for who He is. That He's the one to be obeyed. That He is the Master. That He is the one that shapes what you say and do. And so when you sanctify Christ in your hearts, you give to Him the weight that He's deserved. Children, those of you that are younger than the oldest in your family... When older brother or sister comes to you and tells you to do something, and you say, I don't care what you tell me to do, because you're not mommy or daddy. And then they say, well, mommy said so. And then, all of a sudden, something just changed. Right? You see, you have just experienced sanctifying mommy in your heart. Right? You've just experienced this idea that what big brother or sister says really doesn't have a lot of weight. But mommy, on the other hand, the lady gets what she wants. And so the idea here of sanctifying Christ in our hearts is that the Lord Jesus Christ, He is our great shepherd. He is the master of the universe and the master of my own individual soul. And what He desires should be what I do sanctify Christ in your hearts. We shape our lives to speak of the Lord as the ultimate priority in our lives, the one whose word is final and to be obeyed at all costs. So can we sanctify Christ in our hearts? Can we live as we prioritize the things of God? If I'm yet unredeemed, obviously I can't do that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of of the regeneration that the Lord Jesus gives to us, then I can begin to sanctify Christ in my heart. Let us pray.